Welcome to episode 231 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are here in uh, the new studio that we are just furbishing. Uh, it's not complete, but it's pretty good. We'll send pictures around to, from uh, the event. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, as you know. Uh, and we've got a great panel uh, today today. Uh, uh, for our guest interview and hopefully uh, weighing in on some of the news uh, items, Michael Chertoff, co-founder and executive chairman of the Chertoff Group, formerly my boss, Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, uh, and the author of Exploding Data, Reclaiming Our Cybersecurity in the Digital Age. Uh, welcome, Secretary Chertoff. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, and uh, uh, speaking of people who worked for uh, Michael Chertoff, Paul Rosenzweig, the founder of Red Branch Consulting and senior fellow at the R Street Institute, former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at DHS. Uh, welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me, Stuart. And uh, Matthew Hyman is here, visiting scholar from George Mason University's National Security Institute, formerly with the uh, National Security Division at the Justice Department. Matthew, it's great to have you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, and Gus Hurwitz uh, on Skype, uh, uh, Assistant Secretary, uh, sorry, Associate Professor of Law, because he's got tenure, uh, and co-director of the Space, Cyber, and Telecom Program at the University of Nebraska. And uh, for those students and law professors who are listening to the program and who have been impressed by Gus's uh, contributions, uh, he's now poachable. Uh, uh, your your law school could try to hire him away, at least as a visiting professor. Welcome, Gus. Uh, now, now you're really just trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> you can deny it. Feel free. And I will, in case my dean is listening. All right. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Uh, uh, let's jump right in. The National Academy, Paul, uh, has a report out on securing the vote. You took a pretty good look at that. Uh, what did you think? I, I think like most National Academy uh, reports, it is uh, pretty solid technically. And uh, the real question is whether or not there's political will to implement it has a series of recommendations as, as such national academies reports have the most salient of which are uh, at least have paper backups right and do uh, risk based auditing of results which is different from how we do recounting now everywhere except in Colorado who's only done it for a couple of years now and, and uh, there are other you know like most reports there are 26 recommendations or something like that but the big ones are you should you should use paper Forget machines. Or at least have paper backup, right? There's only five states that still have DRE, direct recorded elections, without any paper backup. Uh, and in fact, there's a hearing going on in Georgia as we speak about whether or not the court there is going to order Georgia to close down its direct recorded election system and reinstitute some form of paper backup uh, 50 days before the election. So I, I really wouldn't want to be the election election commissioner in Georgia if, if we was ordered to make a change. Ooh, that would be tough. Yeah, very hard. I mean, I... I Luckily, we're, we're probably not at risk of running out of paper. That's true. I do think it is, it is the right answer, which is uh, that we have to take risk-limiting, risk-mitigating steps uh, to secure the election infrastructure in the same way that we've spent the last 10 years kind of hardening the, elect the electric grid or the transportation grid. Yeah, although this is kind of... What's interesting about this is that we're... we're going full Luddite. Uh, we're just throwing the, the computers out. Well, you know, I mean, there was a report about five years ago in the Air Force, and they're keeping about a quarter of their uh, systems that, that do the nuclear missiles in analog precisely for the same reason, yeah. uh, which does make it seem a little silly that we, that we have to be Luddites in, in order to be effective, but it's the reality of where we are. Okay. I, audits. That's not something we do now, and, and it, it's, I, it makes all sense in the world that you would want to make sure that your systems are actually doing what you think they're doing. Uh, um, but that's been surprisingly controversial. The effort to require states to do that has uh, um, led to uh, legislation at the federal level getting stalled. Yeah, I, well, I think that the resistance in the states is as much you know, political prerogative and, uh, yeah, and, and, and all that as it is anything. So there's also a cost factor, which is it's a it's clearly one of those typical federal mandates without any backup uh, payment. On the other hand, uh, you know, the ability to actually do a statistically significant audit and give you confidence that the result reported is 
is the result that was uh, was produced is, I think, a really valuable way of um, cross-checking ourselves and, and, and should be considered by any state that has enough funds to pay for it, even if the feds didn't order you to do it. All right. Um, let's let's change gears uh, and locations. I boy, you know, September one comes, and the Europeans just <laughs> they come, they all come back and they have got the craziest ideas. It's just amazing how much news they've made in the last week and a half. Uh, um, and Gus, uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, news stories was a European. Uh, uh, Court of Human Rights ruling on um, GCHQ's collection, mass collection of uh, uh, intelligence, uh, uh, essentially uh, um, telecommunications uh, in mass that could be searched later. Um, and ECHR actually didn't say it was a bad thing. They just said it needed some constraints. Is that right? It kind of is. Um, this is a, a puzzle opinion um, and a fascinating one, and I really look forward to seeing what comes next. So the, the basic uh, holding of the ECHR was that there were uh, inadequate safeguards um, to protect bulk data collection, including, uh, in particular, uh, a related uh, data sort of collection. And this was on the collection side of things, not the subsequent searching side of things. But as you note, uh, the court expressly seems to say that bulk data collection isn't inherently problematic. It just needs to be done with uh, uh, adequate safeguards uh, to comply with um, uh, uh, the Convention on uh, Human Rights. Now, it's unclear to me how you actually implement that. Um, if you uh, need to know what data you're going to be collecting beforehand in order to implement these safeguards, but you need to have the data collected in bulk in order uh, to uh, uh, know what have the data that you're going to need to be able to and search. It's really hard to know uh, how you implement that. But the, the fascinating thing, I think, here is uh, I'm going to speculate and say pretty much all of the major European countries are doing things like this. Um, and one of the notable things uh, uh, the commentary has said about the uh, GCHQ program is it's very similar to what uh, we in the United States was doing, uh, were doing. And it's really easy uh, to play politics when the concern is about the United States violating these European protections. But this is starting to force uh, the, the gaze inward. And something's got to give. Either uh, uh, the EU is going to need to say, okay, we need to stop doing this our collection entirely. Or they're going to need to say, okay, those standards we've been holding uh, the US to in these political talks uh, and uh, the, the failed uh, um, safe harbor and privacy shield um, negotiations, maybe we need to give a little there because we can't hold the U.S. to higher standards that we're going to hold ourselves. So I, so think, I, I think what oh, go ahead. The, it's significant that this is the European Court of Human Rights, and it has pretty consistently seemed more sensible on this issue than the European Court of Justice, which has mostly seen these cases in the context of beating up the United States. Uh, and it has done it with an enthusiasm and an irresponsibility that is staggering. Um, whereas the European Court of Human Rights actually has uh, kind of thought carefully about this and has essentially said, of course, we're not going to stop bulk collection. Terrorism uh, is a serious problem, and this is the only answer we have to it. Let me ac actually see if I can get um, uh, Secretary Chertoff to jump in on this because this is um, the European Court of Human Rights opinion at, at a high level is not so different from what you say about uh, the future of data, uh, of protection from government data uh, programs uh, going forward in, in the world that we're going to be facing. Well, that's right, because I think what it recognizes is there's a tension between two impulses that you can only reconcile if you unpack really what is involved in surveillance. On the one hand, if you don't collect the data, when you do come across a relevant data point, you have nothing to compare it to. You've lost the trail. So therefore, you miss opportunities that would be justified to do searching. On the other hand, I think we all understand you don't want to have willy-nilly huge amounts of data being rifled through by the government looking for whatever they're looking for. So one way to reconcile these is to say collection – 
under a relatively relaxed standard is okay, but you can only hold it and not look at it until you have some more specific predication. So that reconciles two arguably inconsistent but actually necessary facets of surveillance. Yeah, and that, that is sort of what the ECHR said here. Uh, well, I want to I get through the full European uh, um, uh, 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 wackiness. Um, the copyright bill. Um, uh, Matthew, uh, there's a copyright bill that is not quite done, but it's 90% done. And my guess is that uh, uh, there aren't going to be big changes because there are lobbies on both sides of the issues. Uh, uh, it is an astonishingly aggressive enforcement of intellectual property rights, isn't it? Yes. And it's also an astonishingly protectionist piece of legislation that falls right in line with what Europe is doing when it comes to major tech platforms. So the upshot of the bill is that if someone posts copyrighted material on YouTube, which is owned by Alphabet, Google, or Facebook, or anywhere else, those platforms become responsible for getting rid of it. And if they don't get rid of it, they're at risk. And they need uh, automated uh, protocols for doing that, which means, um, you know, hashes and stuff that will almost certainly interfere with fair use uh, at a minimum, as well as being overprotective generally. Exactly. And the thing that's striking to me about this is the, if you look at the winners and losers as a result of this legislation, the losers are the major tech platforms, which tend to be U.S. companies. The winners are newspapers and magazines. There's lots of those in Europe. Yep. And the other winner are sports franchises because the other part of the bill talks about the fact that if you're at a stadium watching Liverpool play Manchester United and you take photos or you've got a video and you post it to Twitter, uh, the sports franchises can force that to be taken off. And so it's striking to me that uh, the, the bill protects sports franchises and we know Europe has some of the most valuable sports franchises in the form of soccer and Formula One race teams. So... Uh, being very cynical and jaded about a lot of European legislation, I think this is just another pot shot at U.S. tech firms. Plus, it keeps all the the, uh, the dark money flowing to FIFA. Exactly. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, so that's not the only uh, anti-Silicon uh, Valley measure uh, that, that they're uh, pursuing. Uh, right. uh, Paul, um, they told us to take – they told the tech companies they have to take down terrorist messages within an hour. Yeah, they did. <laughs> um, okay. I, you know, I, and if wishes were fishes, we'd all never starve. I mean, you know, it, this is one of those, uh, you know, the tech companies need to magic uh, harder. Yeah. Uh, it, it, nerd, nerd harder. Nerd harder. Okay, yeah. not magic harder. Um, it's obviously a completely unreasonable um, uh, request. And, and what it really reflects, and, and this is, this is kind of a, a, a slightly deeper point than than Matt's Matthew's protectionism, but I but I with which I agree is uh, it's it's the discretionary it, it's devolving everything to the discretionary judgment of European regulators, mm -hmm. right? That because everybody's going to violate this, uh, so who gets fined will be at the at the women and judgment of you know some privacy protection. Uh, data DPA of in Sweden. Um, I, I used to compare it to French parking regulations. Yes. Everybody parks on the sidewalk, but only the people who don't tug their forelock for the cops. I have to pay exactly, and 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 um, and frankly, this is true of of a lot of how Europe is developing its privacy regulations these days. The GDPR uh, is is essentially a formula for. Uh, privacy rule by unaccountable, unelected DPAs uh, in Europe that they hope to globalize. And then this is just part and parcel of that. So uh, what should we make of the fact that in the right to be forgotten case, Europe is divided? Uh, some are saying, the French are saying, I think the Austrians are saying, yeah, we're going to impose this uh, censorship regime on anybody anywhere. Uh, and Americans shouldn't be able to read stuff about uh, Europeans who want to be forgotten. Uh, um, and the European Commission has said, well, not so fast. Maybe we should be more cautious than that. I, I would make of it that the European Commission recognizes that, that going too far down this road is sauce for the goose. Sauce for the gander, very much like what Gus was saying about 
the inconsistency of holding GCHQ to the standards that had heretofore been imposed only upon those evil Americans. Yeah. Also, what do you, if you're going to allow the exporting of a rule like this, what's to stop the Chinese from saying, well, you know what, we're going to punish you if you run anything by the Uyghurs or anybody who doesn't agree with mm-hmm. Xi Jinping. So I think there may be a dose of reality that's moderated here. Or criticizing Erdogan uh, from right. Turkey. You're right. Uh, uh, there's plenty of laws in Turkey that say that you can't do that, and they'd be happy to say you can't do it anywhere in the world. Uh, but that is where we're going, I suspect. Uh, uh, let me, because uh, I want to move through a bunch of these cases. <laughs> no. uh, uh, I know. Um, social media bias. Uh, I uh, I actually got to play in this uh, sandbox uh, briefly. Uh, I saw uh, somebody claiming that he had uh, uh, linked to uh, Alex Jones's Infowars. And I, you know, I'm not a big fan of Alex Jones. Uh, uh, but I thought, well, it cannot be the case that you would be banned from Facebook for uh, um, linking to uh, an Infowars site. So I um, took my uh, uh, social media uh, status uh, in hand and put it at risk and actually linked to them to see if they would, if Facebook would take me down and they did not. Uh, and in fact, they have later said that it was a mistake to have uh, taken down this guy's account uh, for the link. Um, this is... I. The lesson I draw from this is it's almost impossible to tell or to, to get ground truth on what kind of bias is being exhibited by social platform, the social mm-hmm. media platforms, because they have so many ways to tailor what they do to individuals um, that you think you've uh, um, tested whether they're doing something. And it may just be that they're not stupid enough to take down uh, uh, an account that isn't obviously on the margins. Um, let me ask uh, Gus to talk a little bit about uh, uh, one of the efforts to um, deal with uh fake news and to do so in an unbiased way. Um, the Weekly Standard has been asked to do um, accuracy checks on uh, stories. So this, this was a surprise to me because they're obviously right-leaning uh, and most of the fact checkers lean left. Um, what's the story there? Yeah, so this is a uh, counterexample perhaps to the uh, lack of transparency on how social media is trying to a police bias, and it's uh, perhaps a cautionary lesson for what happens when uh, social media is upfront about what they're doing. Um, so uh, Facebook has brought on board uh, five agencies, the Associated Press, PolitiFact, Snopes, FactCheck.org, and as you note, the Weekly Standard. And basically, all five of them have a veto. Uh, all five of them, uh, uh, any one of those five can look at a story and say, this is factually inaccurate, and Facebook um, uh, takes that to mean a major or significant fact in the story, whether or not that is inaccurate. Um, and if any one of them says, yeah, the story has a problem, um, the uh, article, when it's run on Facebook, um, it will have a warning sign on it, and also it's demoted in uh, their feed. So they lose about 80% of uh, uh, their viewership, um, which obviously in uh, our ad-driven market, market can be uh, quite a big uh, loss for um, uh, news or non-news agencies. So Think Progress had a story um, about uh, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings with the headline um, saying Brett Kavanaugh, quote, will kill Roe v. Wade. Um, And this was a, frankly, a terrible misinterpretation or misrepresentation of uh, his comments about Glucksburg and uh, the sort of thing that only someone who knows very little about the law, but enough to be dangerous, uh, could come up with and draw some connections to. And the Weekly Standard called it out and said, no, that's not what he said. Uh, you're drawing some inferences. Um, and I uh, think this uh, uh, threw a fit. They said, uh, we've got no way to appeal this. We're losing tons of traffic as a result of this. Uh, why does the Weekly Standard, uh, this political organization, right-wing partisan, all of this terrible stuff that the press doesn't like to uh, have in it. Why do they get to veto our uh, coverage? Um, and uh, to their credit, 
um, uh, Slate wrote a story covering this saying, hey, uh, think progress. You're on the wrong side here. Um, your headline is factually inaccurate. Um, so uh, good on you, Slate. Uh, and you get some uh, 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 factual accuracy points uh, there. But uh, there are a lot of, I think, really interesting questions uh, uh, in this case. Um, first, Facebook, their general perspective, and this sounds familiar for most social media, is our hands are these are our fact checkers. We're not going to second guess them. Uh, you can hear echoes of Section 230 through this. Um, but uh, a weekly standard, they're a news organization. They get to uh, call out factually inaccurate stuff just as much as Snopes. But there are uh, interesting uh, uh, institutional structure questions here. Should it be a single <coughs> vote? Uh, should Facebook have a formal appeal process? Um, is the penalty too high? Um, uh, uh, I think it's really interesting that Facebook is uh, experimenting with this. I think it's laudable that uh, they have the weekly standard included, and perhaps they're the wrong organization. Perhaps uh, uh, I won't pick on weekly standard. Perhaps uh, PolitiFact will have a run of four or five bad calls, at which point maybe Facebook then should say, okay, you've had a bite at the apple and a second and a third bite at the apple. We're going to cycle you out of uh, uh, our fact check group or we're going to bring some others in, or we're going to switch this to require require two organizations to uh, throw flags, per se. Um, but uh, uh, it's been a bit of a mess for Facebook, um, and I think it's at least better than uh, the Twitter scenario that you described, Stuart, where we don't know what's going on. At least here we do, so we can talk about it. So fake fake news is one uh, uh, way by which the platforms decide who can speak and who can't. Uh, uh, hate speech is another. Uh, and uh, uh, Paul, uh, Twitter has a has a new definition of of, of uh, hate speech or a new example of hate speech, as I understand it. Uh, uh, now, if you if you talk about illegal aliens, you're engaging in in hate speech. Well, that, that seems to be the case. I, I suspect we're in the middle of the story that um, that your uh, your your example with Infowars will uh, will get us to the end of, which is to say, I, I suspect that won't be the case for too long because it's it's a pretty silly position, uh, especially since uh, it it's a phrase that has found its way in into Supreme Court opinions um, and uh, and has a, a legal provenance as well. So, uh, but it does show the, uh, both the, uh, dangers of asking social media to be content moderators, um, and also the, the virtues of making it a private company that does it. At least it's not the government calling it hate speech. Um, and if you don't like Twitter, you can get off of the, off of the medium and start a, a separate one. Yeah. I, if we're going to ask social media to do any content moderation at all, and we're going to, because mm-hmm. at least, you know, child pornography, you know, uh, Nazi speech, we're going to have to. They're going to make mistakes. And this seems clearly like one of them. <laughs> so, OK, um, I want to move on. Uh, and uh, uh, the the meltdown of security on the Adahar uh, identity database, uh, uh, database in uh, India is a fascinating story, but I don't think we have time to talk about it and its policy implications are kind of uh, um, minimal. Uh, uh, same thing is true. There was an endless story about uh, um, uh, how IBM had developed technology um, to go through um, CCTV footage. And one of the ways you could search it if you were doing face recognition is by skin color. Um, and the the twelve-page story basically seems to say, "Well, that's got to be shocking. Uh, who's responsible for asking that?" I can't understand why you would not want to be able to say if they tell you that the suspect was Caucasian, you could say, "Okay, go through this uh, this crowd and eliminate the people who aren't Caucasian, so we can start looking for the suspect." Um, but apparently, that. Uh, um, just the idea that you would recognize that there are different skin colors is 
too much for some of the reporters. I want to skip those and go right to a bill that's gotten almost no attention and which the California governor is probably about to sign. Uh, and that is the IOT security bill. Uh, um, a, the bill is pretty modest uh, in some respects. It basically says you have to have reasonable security. And by that, we mean, if you're selling IoT devices, uh, uh, we mean you either force people to change the password or you have a unique password for every single device you sell. Like, and, you know, it's probably uh, uh, pasted on the, uh, um, on the device, uh, um, which sounds like, you know, kind of not a bad idea, but a little incomplete. Um, thoughts? Uh, this struck me as the uh, California Attorney General hunting license bill. Well, um, that's for sure because it's not. It, there's no private right of action. There's no private right the, of action. The, the California Attorney General is going to be almost as important as the European Commission. Well, or a mini FTC, right? Mm -hmm. Where where when you're trying to figure out what exactly you're supposed to do as a device manufacturer, it's got to be appropriate and reasonable according to the language of the bill and have the password option. Uh, but otherwise, it's really in the attorney general's hands to figure out what appropriate and reasonable is. And it strikes me that we're going to have all these manufacturers bear this cost of creating this password uh, issue. But I'm not sure that solves the issue of no, IoT they have to security. Be updatable for that, exactly. at a minimum. They yeah, have to be it, 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 it's a protection against like the rarest stupidest brute force attack right. and and nothing more uh, I, i'm gonna i'm gonna echo a couple of security researchers who who uh who i've spoken to and read about this and you know it's it's the magic bullet of adding a security feature instead of going back to the beginning and fixing the security mm -hmm. flaw in the first instance and uh, uh you know leaving completely aside the absurdity of the litigation uh, uncertainty that it creates it's just not going to make anybody safer, uh, at least not much. It's a little. Well, I, I can yeah. slightly disagree. I mean, I think it's a. It's not complete. It solves one problem. There are other problems, but the point is, it opens the door to what I think is important, which is you've got to build into these multiplying devices some reasonable level of security, recognizing you know you're not going to necessarily defeat the most adept attackers, but I think what's emerged in the last year or so is that getting a poorly protected device and connecting it to your network is not just a problem for you as the consumer, but it's a problem for everybody else when they get taken over to become part right. of a giant botnet. So at that point, it's not enough to say, buyer beware, you got to tell the manufacturer you own some of the responsibility. I, 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 so, I think that does make sense. Yep, uh, Gus, go I, ahead. I, I want to hop in with the two things. First, I'm going to agree and disagree with uh, uh, the previous comments. I think this is a good step for some problems, but I, I just really look forward to the California AG trying to bring a suit against um, a couple hundred, a couple thousand Chinese IoT device manufacturers, since a lot of the problem is low-cost, cheap imported devices. And as I, as I read the legislation, um, it doesn't have any provision. It expressly disclaims the ability to go after the people selling these devices, the electronic marketplaces, uh, for instance. Right. The other thing, I just look at this legislation and I think the D-Link case, the FTC's uh, attempt to uh, bring an unfairness complaint against D-Link for having said, if you, it's problematic to say to secure your device, change the password. Um, and this legislation basically says to secure your device, make sure you require the users to change the password. Uh, so, uh, there, there's a nice uh, a conflation or conflict there between the FTCs and the California legislature's understanding of what security requires. So, you, you know, you're, you may be right. I think the California attorney general can sue those uh, manufacturers, can say you must recall these. And if you don't recall it, we're going to take this order against you and take it to the ISPs that uh, service your uh, IoT and tell them to turn your IoT off. Um, and um, when users complain that their uh, device is not working, uh, they will get a notice from the California attorney general allowing them to uh, um, uh, join a class action against the manufacturer. I'll make one final point, Stuart, which is to pair this with California's recent new privacy regulations. And 
what we've seen systematically at at the federal level is uh, is is an inability or an unwillingness to act and California is doing in this context exactly what it did years ago in terms of car uh, safety and car pollution air yep. pollution uh, which is they're trying to use their their space as the largest economy in the in the country to drive a regulatory uh, uh, decision making when uh, Washington is at an impasse and we've already seen in the privacy sector that that's had a second order impact. The NIST is, has, is going to issue a, a RFP for privacy protective technology. There's increased interest in privacy, a global pri- a generalized privacy regulation coming out of Congress maybe or, or out of the FTC. And I think that this is going to drive the exact same thing in the IoT, whether we like it or not. And so it, it matters to get it right. <laughs> so my prediction, uh, 10 more states will adopt this in the next year. Exactly. Uh, unless it, send, it ends up in litigation challenging its constitutionality, which I think is unlikely, uh, um, it's going to uh, uh, spread across New York and Massachusetts and Nevada and uh, a whole <clears throat> bunch of states. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, we are going to live with it. And maybe maybe that's not so bad. We'll talk with uh, Secretary Chertoff about that. Uh, okay. I just want to quick, quick yes. pin in the idea you mentioned that the uh, California Attorney General could go to court and get an injunction requiring ISPs uh, to uh, shut off uh, IoT devices. Uh, we'll need to come back to that at some point. Uh, uh, a fascinating, controversial, problematic, hard, really good, terrible idea. So there's a lot there. <laughs> yes, I, uh, 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 that's that's my specialty. Uh, okay, uh, uh, thanks uh, uh, to Matthew, uh, uh, to uh, Paul, and to Gus. Uh, I want to turn to uh, uh, our interview with Michael Chertoff. Uh, I remember his book is Exploding Data, Reclaiming Our Cybersecurity in the Digital Age. Uh, uh, great book. I spent uh, uh, a lot of time with it uh, in August and over the weekend. Uh, and and, um, you know, I, I heard in it echoes of things that uh, you and I worked on when we were uh, – and uh, Paul, when we were at uh, DHS. But clearly, you've spent a lot of time thinking about these issues since you left government. Uh, um, and you're, you basically have said, I think, that the <laughs> kind of data that we collect, uh, the amount uh, that is available – changes everything about privacy and our expectations for government and the private sector. So I, I thought maybe you could just give us a little overview of why you think that and where you believe that change in the nature of what we collect is driving us. So, I mean, in the 10 years since I was in government, I've become familiar with the volume of data we generate, uh, not even intentionally, just mm-hmm. by third parties or by things that automatically generate data. And I'm not just talking about your smart device. I'm talking about the fact you go into the grocery store, you get a discount if you use your loyalty fob, uh, use your credit card, you have locational data, use your Fitbit. All of this is stuff that actually occurred after I left. And what I realized was in trying to focus on privacy as hiding your data or keeping it confidential, we were chasing after a will of the wisp. Because you're not going to be able to do that anymore unless you so radically take yourself off the grid that uh, it becomes almost impossible. One example, one way to be off the grid is to pay cash. I've now walked by stores where they say, we don't take cash anymore. You've got to use your credit card. And that, it makes a lot of sense for them not to take cash because cash just attracts robbers, uh, uh, pilfering. So you can see why they would just not do that. Sure. But it also means you are generating now data and information about every single purchase you make. Yes. And then, of course, with the advent of the cloud, it's no longer kept in silos, but it can be aggregated. Right. And the, what struck me was <clears throat> people were complaining after Snowden about the government, but actually the private sector was collecting and using vastly more data, and not in order to protect your life, but to sell you stuff. Right. Or worse yet, as we saw recently, to try to coerce you or manipulate you into doing certain things. Yeah, I, I always thought that some of the reaction to Snowden and the general Silicon Valley attack on government collection is they see it as a competitor or maybe more uh, uh, fairly, they think that concerns about what the government will do with this data 
slop over and lead to concerns about whether they should be collecting it at all. Uh, and so they're happy to say, don't worry, the government can get, can't get at it. So you can stop worrying about it and just give it all to us. Yeah. And, and I think also, you know, there, there is a, um, was a, a bit of a myth, maybe a kind of a self-perpetuating myth, that the government can do much worse things to you than the private sector. But the reality is for the government, at least the democratic government, to do worse things, it's got to be visible and transparent. If you wind up not getting a job because someone doesn't like your eating and sleeping habits, you're not going to know about that, at least under the current state right. of the law. And therefore, that can be a very serious consequence visited upon you with no transparency. Yeah, I, I, I remember that Lyft or Uber or maybe both of them uh, announced that they weren't going to give rides to people who were going to rallies for the Proud Boys or some of these groups that uh, are white identity groups. Uh, uh, and I'm confident they didn't tell them, by the way, we hate you, so we're not giving you the service. They just weren't available. There was nobody on the street when you asked for the ride. Right. Uh, and you couldn't tell why that was uh, unless you had aggregated the data of Three three hundred of your uh, associates, right? And so I think that what what I'm really arguing now is it, we have to move away from thinking we can conceal our data or keep it hidden, and recognize it's going to be out there. But now the question is, do you have a right to control it? And now that happens to be something the Europeans have moved towards. And although I'm not always a reflexive fan of of what they do, I have to say in this case, putting aside the details, they have a point. Um, and I'll give you an example from our own history when photography was invented. <clears throat> um, you know, there's a famous story about a young woman whose picture was taken by her boyfriend who sold it to a flower company that pasted it on the side of the bags of flour. And she sued. And her argument was you shouldn't be able to use my image even though it wasn't taken unlawfully and it's not pornographic. And initially the courts said, no, you have no right to sue because you haven't been defamed. Uh, eventually they said, you know, there actually is an interest here worth protecting. You shouldn't be commercially exploited or have your image commercially exploited without permission. That's an early example of control over data that the courts came to. And I think we're going to head there more and more. So I, I, I know the same story and I've drawn a completely different lesson from that. Uh, that was um, – that was at the heart of Louis Brandeis's complaint in, in the, this, uh, the iconic, much cited and little read uh, article about the right to privacy uh, in which he says, it's just shocking that people can take my picture without my permission. You know, if I wanted my portrait, I'd pay somebody to uh, uh, paint it. Uh, and the idea that somebody could take your picture without your permission was so disturbing to him that he came up with this whole idea of the right to privacy. Um, and in the end, none of us has, a, has protection against having people take our picture. Uh, this has turned from a privacy right into a commercial exploitation. But actually, we do. <clears throat> so here's an example. Um, there is now case law, like in a case like Carpenter, that puts a limit on the ability of the government to get access to your locational data, which tracks you every moment uh, without getting a warrant, a right. warrant being kind of the, the baseline for what permission is. And you also have the Jones case, which involves surveillance, admittedly using an attached device. But if you read the opinions, you see the issue is broader than that. Where we're headed, and I think this is interesting and correct, is for the court to say, you know, it is true that when you're in public, you don't have a right not to be seen. But at some point, if the technology gives the government the ability to ubiquitously observe you 24-7 indefinitely, we're going to require some kind of permission for that. And that's an example of, of the court now basically saying there is not a limitless right to observe you. Fair enough. Although uh, the idea that individuals can't take my picture is it's preposterous. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'd love to be able to enforce it, but uh, I can't. Uh, I, and, and no one thinks the government is prohibited from taking your picture because they've been doing that uh, 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 for many years, especially when they're dealing with organized crime. Um, uh, so my, my sense on this is that what happened is Brandeis was shocked enough and prestigious enough to get the courts to start recognizing a right to protect your picture. Um, but that while that was happening, people were getting used to their picture 
being taken. And by the time the two things came together, no one could justify having a real right to privacy, and it turned into this right of commercial exploitation. And that, and that may be the case with respect to the data we generate now, <clears throat> which is you're not going to basically make it impossible to generate the data because people do like the convenience, but you will give them some say into what's done with it. And Can how it be sold? Can it be used for purposes other than the intrinsic to the particular uh, uh, purpose you've given your data up for. And, and surely that's right. As, as people discover bad ways in which their data can be used, they will object to it. Revenge porn uh, laws, for example. Uh, I, and that is, from an American perspective, a more appropriate way to regulate than to say you have a rights of man right to control your data, whatever that means, uh, because that, that leads to, um, you know, the uh, French parking situation where uh, you're always in violation of law. The question is whether you're going to be punished. Right. And, you, and obviously, we're not going to, I mean, adopt necessarily the European uh, implementation of this kind of thing. But I do think, here's an example of where I think we could be headed, which I talk about in the book. And you see it now. There's an insurance, auto insurance company that will give you a, quote, discount if you put a device on your car that uh, records how you drive. And that doesn't mean if you break the law. It means are you driving in an erratic way? Are you accelerating quickly, stopping quickly, et cetera? Now, one man's discount is another man's penalty. Right. So essentially what they're saying is if you let us monitor everything you do in the car, we'll give you a discount or we'll penalize you. What happens when your health insurer does that? And says, well, you know, I really want to see your Fitbit data. I'm going to look at what you buy, uh, what you eat, when you eat. You go to a restaurant before you drive. And I'm going to adjust your uh, premiums up and down depending on whether you're living a healthy lifestyle. Now, the Chinese are already onto this with their social credit score, which they're trying to develop, which basically says if you're a good citizen, as determined by our ubiquitous monitoring of what you do, what you eat, where you go, and who your friends are, then you'll get better schooling. Better jobs. You'll, 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 you'll get uh, first class uh, train tickets, which you can't right. get if your social credit score right. is too uh, low. And you could easily see that migrating into a democratic country or a country like the U.S., not because the government necessarily is going to do it, but because the private sector will do it. And that's that would easily turn into a situation in which I, what I call big nanny instead of big yeah. brother. Someone's always telling you, essentially, you can't do this. You have to do this. And I assume that one of the things that you think to be uh, uh, part of regulation of this is to understand what people are doing with the data uh, because one of the things that makes the social credit uh, score in China effective and what makes some of the uh, social media um, censorship regimes effective is you don't know exactly where the line is. You don't know when they're hurting you and when they aren't and so you just get cautious about what you do, even if it is not formally prohibited. Exactly. You, basically, you self-police. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that it inhibits you, uh, and, you and you're and you taught over time, in much the same way as you might teach a dog, uh, to stay away from certain things because they may generate a problem. And in a way, that's a much more powerful way of conditioning behavior and coercing it than having a lot of laws that are only intermittently enforced. What about you, you? You talk about the idea that maybe there should be more restrictions, more consent, uh, maybe uh, prohibitions on sharing this data with third parties. Uh, that it's collected for one purpose, uh, and they may tell you we 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 share it with our partners to improve your uh, experience, uh, but you don't know exactly what it's being uh, what's being done with that data. Um, I, I, I see the, the reason why people might want to do that, but one of the countervailing considerations has been, well, if you um, don't allow sharing with third parties, you're essentially locking in the biggest collectors of data today who can use it for any purpose and start a new business based on the data. But uh, other people who might want to start a business based on that data are prohibited from getting it. Well, actually, I think, you know, it's not to me what's more important <clears throat> than whether it's shared with a third party or whether you use it for a third purpose, uh, other than the original purpose is, is it being repurposed? I mean, that's the critical issue. And I, I kind of divide the data situation into three categories. There are uses of the data that are obviously intrinsic to what it is you've signed up to do. If you use Google Maps, giving them the, the, your, your location is necessary in order to have it work. 
Then there is uh, uses of data that are not intrinsic. When when whether they do it themselves or they sell to a third party, if it's used to market by sending you ads when you walk by a store, that's to me a distinct purpose you should have to agree to. The third issue is what do you do when people make use of your data that you didn't turn over? So you know someone takes photos of you. They mention you in Facebook. They do all kinds of things without your consent or knowledge, and it's all aggregated because mm-hmm. the cloud provider can collect it all. And now it's used to, to target you for certain things, and you never agree to anything at all. And in my view, that is the area where you deserve the most uh, right to control the use of data. That's interesting. But the most obvious example is when other people say something about you, right? They tag you in a photo. They uh, uh, characterize your politics, whatever. Um, That is data about you, but it it wasn't anything you provided. Uh, um, It was something provided by your friend in many cases – the friend got a benefit. Uh, uh, I, I remember that's how Cambridge Analytica worked. Right. Uh, you 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 provided this data and you uh, gave the names of all your friends, uh, and that was the crucial data that uh, um, uh, they utilized. Um, what about the argument that says, well, this is uh, the the right of the other party to say what he thinks and to provide information that he knows. You've already lost control of that data. But, he, but here's where Carpenter comes back. One of the kind of observations I make in the book is that the scale of what's done nowadays with data changes the substance in the sense that, yes, in the old days, if someone wants to say something about you, they can do that. But implicit in that is the idea that it's not all being collected in one place. So it's basically fragmented. It's what I call information friction. And the assumption that you can uh, say what, what's public, you know, you have no right to, is built upon what was for centuries, this information friction. Now imagine all these millions of users of social media platforms, each individually have something to say about you or to mm-hmm. photograph on you. But now it's all collected. And you have essentially almost a 24-7 view of you because in the aggregate, the collector is able to, to draw that inference. That, to me, is the lesson of Carpenter. What Carpenter says is at some point, the scale actually changes the substance. So let's let's just quickly ask about Carpenter. I, I, I should point out, not only were you Secretary of Homeland Security, but you were a Third Circuit uh, appellate judge, and you were head of the criminal right. division at the Justice Department. Uh, um how do you think the head of the criminal division is going to adjust and how, how much are they going to like the new sorts of rules that you're laying out for government? You know, I actually, um, and I, when I was in Europe, I had some people kind of raise this, uh, you know, in a, in a kind of a semi-critical way. Um, I'm actually advocating uh, less of a change in the way we deal with government than I am with the private sector because the government already operates under fairly stringent and familiar rules, and it's just a question of adapting those rules, again, to scale when that changes substance. And in fact, as, as we said a little bit earlier, to me, um, I'm actually willing to be fairly relaxed on collection because I think the value of collected data is not usually evident until after the fact. And so I'd counterbalance that by imposing stronger restrictions on when you get to search it, similar to what we do in the physical world. You know, a stop and frisk is a lower level of, of, of judicial requirement than an actual search or an, or an arrest or a conviction. So, um, you know, I do think that the proposals I'm making actually would be pretty familiar and comfortable to government security agencies. So one, one place where they might not be, there's, there's litigation in the Second Circuit now uh, over <laughs> whether a warrant is required. When you gather information under the 702 program that we're all familiar with, uh, uh, it's based on suspicion that a foreigner is a terrorist, but they're, you're collecting communications that may come from the United States. You collect them. You've collected them lawfully. The question then is, can the FBI just run searches through that database just like any other looking for Americans they're trying to vet. Um, And it's the 
the left that has brought this lawsuit says, no, you need a warrant to do that. Uh, I, I take it you would you would feel comfortable with the idea that there ought to be some limitations, some showing that the FBI has to go through before it does a search for the name of an American in that database. I mean, I, I you know, again, if the database is communication with a known terrorist, I'd probably have a fairly low threshold for that, <laughs> um, simply because. Uh, determining whether there's a contact is a, is kind of metadata. It's a minimal mm-hmm. issue. Then, depending on whether, if you've recorded content, uh, and, you know, we deal with this all the time, even in the criminal law with minimization, um, you can generally, if you have a warrant for the actual original interception, look at the material, but then you minimize it if it turns out to be irrelevant. So these are tweaks that we're pretty comfortable with. So let me uh, switch gears a little. Uh, um, at uh, DHS, uh, you really turn DHS into a player in cybersecurity in a way that it was not, except theoretically before that. And um, uh, the Obama administration has built on that. Uh, Kirsten Nielsen has yeah. built on that. And uh, um, it's been a while since I've heard somebody uh, just uh, mock the uh, department uh, for its role in cybersecurity. Uh, uh, but you talk a lot about cybersecurity. Uh, uh, one thing I didn't see, and maybe I missed it, uh, is I didn't see you commenting on the uh, the role that essentially uh, the Justice Department plays now in indicting foreign government actors who have engaged in hacking. Uh, um, what's your sense about the effectiveness of that tactic? So I recognize we're unlikely to get the indicted people in a courtroom. Although occasionally we have cases, I know of a couple, where someone took a trip and they didn't realize they were going to wind up in in a courtroom. I think there are two values to it. One is the uh, issuance of a detailed indictment that actually explains what happens. Often allows us to have a conversation about what's going on that we can't when all we get from the intelligence community are vague allusions to things in very general terms. Medium confidence. Correct. Secondly, in some areas, it actually has more value. I mean, I think in the area of, for example, theft of intellectual property, when PLA members were indicted, it kind of sent a signal to companies that might be using the product of their hacking. You know, you guys could be next. Mm -hmm. And that would be an issue because you could wind up, if a company wants to do business in the U.S. or the West, they could be exposed. So do I think it's a, it's it's not a, a compelling deterrent, it has some value, uh, as does the issue of sanctions have some value, although you can overuse those. Uh, but it's part of a menu of tools. Um, one of the other tools that I, I, I was surprised to find, we, we, we may agree on more than I usually do with people who've been at uh, the criminal division, is uh, um, active defense. Uh, if I could you, you clearly don't believe in hacking back and just kind of randomly attacking whoever attacks you. Uh, uh, but at the end of the day, your position on what companies ought to be able to do or what uh, the private sector ought to be able to do is um, more nuanced than the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act as it stands today. Well, you know, I, th- I think you have to look at a spectrum of <clears throat> responses. There's everything from honeypots where you lure somebody in, it's all in your own network. And generally things done in your own network in, in a general sense sort of strike me as within the, the authority of what you should be able to do. At the other extreme, I don't believe the private sector, unless it's acting at the direction or control of a government agency, ought to be able to move it to someone else's network and actually do damage or disrupt. Uh, a, because uh, putting aside even the legal restrictions, uh, it's possible to have collateral damage. And B, because you may find that the private party escalates a situation. Uh, you know, probably the hardest case to deal with is where you um, kind of dangle something out there that someone steals. And when they steal it, it winds up becoming a poison pill in their own network. Um, and that you could probably debate. Yeah, um, I'm not I'm not even sure I would say that's a good idea yeah. because you never know what network exactly. is going to end up. And uh, on the other hand, you talk about the idea of letting uh, – People leave their network to investigate crimes, to uh, to see where their stuff has gone, as long as they do it under government supervision with clear and, and without causing any harm. Uh, and that uh, 
that strikes me as a an appropriate place to draw the yeah. line, but not a place that people have been able to get the government to draw. Correct. That's because I mean, so I think that's an authorities issue, and I think as long as you're using government authority and direction, I, I'm okay with that. Now you get into an issue of capability, and it may be that the government is not at the, this point confident, confident the capability. Though I can tell you from work I do with the private sector. Um, and the good. truth is, there are a lot of contractors sitting in government offices. Yes. So at some and, level, and, and a lot of the private sector contractors right. uh, used to be sitting in government right. offices. Right. So there's a little bit of maybe a um, not invented here attitude. Yeah. And if you want to scale again, to use that term, your ability to respond, you might want to deputize. Yeah. And actually, someone asked me this question: is the, the distinction between deputizing and delegating? Delegating means here's the authority; you do what you want with it. I'm not in favor of that. Deputizing is you can do this, but it's under my supervision. Mm -hmm. And so I'm arguing deputize, don't delegate. I, I have I have long thought that uh, some attorney general is going to wake up, some state attorney general is going to wake up one morning and realize he can deputize people under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act mm -hmm. and essentially immunize them. Uh, uh, and he could announce a policy of deputizing cybersecurity companies that are located in his state. Uh, and uh, uh, produce a pell-mell rush to locate in his state. Uh, so we could see that happen. Uh, what about no-action letters uh, from uh, the, the uh, computer crime and uh, intellectual property section? seems to me that's a sort of very small step in the direction of saying, okay, we know we've written a very broad law uh, and we're going to tell you there are certain things you can do and certain things you can't do and, and maybe they'll do that with respect to beacons, for example. Yeah. But, uh, a, but my sense is that prosecutors just hate no action letters. Uh, yeah, and I think I, I'd be reluctant to rely on that because um, – you know, how much protection it ultimately gives you is a little bit unclear. I think the government, if they're going to authorize something, ought to come out and authorize it. Yeah. So I, I, we're coming to the end. Uh, I do want to ask you, on, we've talked a lot about privacy, and you've been more comfortable with some of the European approaches than uh, I have been. Uh, at the same time, you clearly committed to better cybersecurity. Uh, I'm discovering a lot of conflict between the kinds of things you have to do for cybersecurity, which is intensely monitor your network, everything that goes in and goes out, uh, uh, and the idea of these very broad protections for personal data, including personal data that might be wandering around on your network. Uh, how do you see that um, tension and what resolution do you think we're going to get? So I think when you're dealing with <clears throat> data on a particular network, <clears throat> um, and even if it's personal data, you should have the ability to police that network in order to maintain security. The reason I say it is this. Privacy is an empty promise without security. If I say, oh, I'm going to protect your data, uh, I'm not going to use it for any purpose other than what you've authorized, and I can't do it because I can't even control my, my network, that promise is worthless. I think you actually enhance privacy when you take the steps in your network to make sure that there's no one intruding or corrupting it. Um, and I don't view that as inconsistent with maintaining the mm -hmm. privacy of the personal data. I view it as actually enabling that privacy. Fair enough. Um, uh, let me just, before we finish up, I should ask, uh, you're doing a book tour, right? Uh, and uh, for uh, listeners, uh, uh, the name of the book again is Exploding Data, Reclaiming Our Cybersecurity in the Digital Age. Um, do you have any speeches or public appearances coming up that our listeners ought to know about? You know, I've just done uh, San Francisco and London. Um, I think I'm doing something up in Boston on November 4th. I'm going to be doing a, a book event. And I expect I'll be talking about this at various places. I'm sure I'll talk about it at RSA next year yes. in out in California in February. And um, so stay tuned. Okay. No, it's a, it's a great compendium of all the issues, very thoughtful uh, uh, prescriptions for how to address them. Uh, uh, it, it is a single book that will bring you up to speed on the entire uh, debate about privacy, cybersecurity, and where we're going uh, online. Uh, so it's been a it's been a pleasure to have you. And, great to uh, be on. Great to see you. Uh, uh, and uh, thanks to Paul Rosenzweig, Matthew Hyman, Gus Hurwitz for joining me, uh, along with Michael Chertoff, to discuss this book. Uh, this has been episode 231 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, if you want to get a, a coveted uh, Cyber Law Podcast mug, uh, just 
suggest another interviewee as good as Michael Chertoff, and uh, we'll uh, send you the mug. Uh, uh, if you want to comment on these stories, you can do that uh, on Twitter or LinkedIn, where I'm Stuart Baker. Uh, please do leave us a, a rating. Uh, that's how people find us. Uh, so if you go to iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, uh, we'd love to get your uh, reviews. We've got some great uh, interviews coming up. Peter Singer from the New, New America uh, Foundation, uh, author of a new book uh, called um, Link War, if I remember right, Like War. Uh, uh, Suzanne Schwartz is going to explain to us how the FDA approaches the Internet of Things and cybersecurity, and that'll be a um, uh, heart stopper, uh, literally. Um, a, the general counsel of GCHQ is going to be on in October, and Chris Krebs, who's the undersecretary for cybersecurity at DHS. I will be talking to us about election security about a week and a half before the election. So this should be lots of fun. Uh, I want to thank Lori Paul and Christy Jorge, who are our producers, uh, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, the intern who has made all of this possible, and I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Uh, so join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.